This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Dan Greenberg. He's the CEO and co-founder of ShareThrough, a platform which powers in-feed native advertising for many of the world's largest publishers. Dan, are you ready to take us to the top? Yes, sir. All right, ma'am. So tell us more about ShareThrough. What do you guys do and what's your business model? How do you monetize? Sure. Uh, started the company actually almost 10 years ago before the word native advertising existed. And the original thesis for the company was that ads should fit in. So instead of ads being this foreign object that sits in the corner of a page, uh, instead of ads being kind of this interruptive thing that forces attention, our thought from the very beginning was let's allow publishers, so like Rolling Stone and Time Inc. and Hearst and ABC News, Disney, folks like that, to monetize their sites on the web as respectfully and as modernly as Facebook does on Facebook or as Twitter does on Twitter. So we're the software company that a company like Vice or Disney or ABC would use to power what we call native ads, integrated, choice-based, like respectful advertising inside their own sites and apps, you know, like a rollingstone.com, vice.com, abcnews.com. We're the software company that powers that for them. And Dan, is it true software or is it a combination SaaS plus cut of spend through your platform? Yeah, software and media. So we're we're the core software that they use to create and manage all of their native placements. So all the integrations, all the pages, all the designs, all the workflow rules. And you charge for that as a SaaS model or no, you give it away for free? We charge for that as a SaaS model. And then on top of that, we allow them to sell their inventory through a programmatic ecosystem. Programmatic advertising is like all the pipes that connect to each other. And so we're, we act as the software that enables them to sell their media through the pipes. Uh, as a result of that, then they pay us a rev share on revenue earned through that programmatic ecosystem. Revenue earned or, or like, re- well, I guess, so when you say earned, the, you mean the publishers are earning. Or do you also work with the advertisers? So it would be kind of what they're paying through the platform or no? Yeah, two sides of the same yeah. coin. Uh, we go out to market and we activate demand, uh, both through direct sales, but also through content marketing and relationships and just events. And like our, our job in the ecosystem is to breathe life into this new ecosystem. Uh, and you know, this type of advertising is new. It's not like new as of yesterday, but it's new in the course of time. You know, advertising that's been predicated on interruption has been like the baseline forever. So. Forever up until you know, maybe 10 years ago, advertising, especially digital advertising, was kind of the like clockwork orange, hold your eyes open, force you to watch this ad whether you like it or not. Uh, and the new normal doesn't start from that premise. The new normal starts from the premise of I'm going to earn attention. And if I have to earn attention, my creative strategy changes, my media strategy changes, my marketing and targeting strategy changes, like the whole thing changes. So our, our job to your question is to activate demand in the market both with the media buyers, with the advertisers and marketers, with the product marketers, with the PR firms, with the creative agencies, and kind of everyone in between. 
Um, and we didn't introduce James, but part of James' job is to help do that too. This is James. Right. <laughs> and James, you manage kind of everything, inbound content, PR, all that jazz. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So really like making a market. You know, we, we invented- Yeah, Dan, term. sorry. Before we get too far away though from my question, you, 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 so you have a SaaS model and then a rev share model on both obviously publisher, advertisers, same, same marketplace. What's your average cut that you're taking on that spend? Uh, the SaaS model, we charge in a CPM. So in advertising land, a CPM is like cost per thousand impressions. And that CPM ranges from maybe 25 cents to 50 cents CPM for the use of the software to manage all of this stuff to the publisher side. Uh, and then on the rev share side, we don't disclose like uh, exact rev shares per pub, but some are in like the low teens to some are in the maybe 20s or so. You know, it's it's a new market. And so there's some variability based on like the type of partner and the depth of relationship and how much activation of demand we're doing in market. Yep. Um, a lot of companies I've spoken to in this space, so Bill Wise was recently on the show and he talks about how he sees it very difficult for anyone to compete with MediaOcean because they're processing 146 billion in volume. So their ad tax is effectively way lower even than what you just quoted. How do you compete with these kinds of platforms that have much larger scale? Yeah, yeah, we don't compete at all with uh, MediaOcean. MediaOcean... I think is like an insertion orders system that agencies use to, to manage like workflows of orders and stuff. Uh, maybe like a middleware thing. So yeah, I mean, we don't compete with them at all. I'm sure we partner with them. I don't actually you know, know offhand. Who we do compete with really is just the, the behemoths of Facebook and Google. You know, some people put Twitter and others in the same sentence, but Twitter pales in comparison in size to Google and Facebook and the ad ecosystem. So in reality, like, our competition is more existential competition for the future of the internet that if the internet survives as a www.com you know, ecosystem of sites and apps and uh, editorial content and journalism and news and magazines and publishers on the web, there's an ecosystem for software companies to play in that. The Facebook, Google you know, industrial complex doesn't necessarily want that same internet to exist in, in the current form. You know, it may be more about Facebook apps on Facebook or maybe more about Google AMP pages. AMP is the uh, you know, fast in-feed or whatever you want to call it, like in-search results where it stays on Google instead of going to a publisher site. So when I think about competition and kind of like the future from that standpoint, I'm thinking about protecting the web. And I'm thinking about defending journalism and defending the independent web and making sure that that world can you know, survive and, and sustain this Chaos. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Dan, I think, we, I think we, so just, we've kind of had a theme of these kinds of folks coming on and it's very clear, like that is the, that is the message. It is, is it is a duopoly and we exist to give people an alternative option besides Facebook and Google. So tell me more of your backstory. When did you launch the company? Sure. Yeah. So started in 2008, uh, the quick story. Hell of a year to launch a company. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it set us up in a, a nice way and that we were insulated from this whole concept of, you know, the crash at the time because we started in it. So that was just the normal for us was building a business, not just a feature company and not just to flip it. But like from the very beginning, it was let's build a sustainable, viable, long-term business. Where was your head at at the time though? I mean, had you just left your corporate job, you were broke, had to make this thing work. Otherwise you're on the street or, I mean, where was your head at? Sure. Uh, so the, the couple of years before this company, I was doing research at Stanford in a lab they call the persuasive technology lab. 
where if anybody listening is really interested in like the intersection of computer science, behavior design, and kind of like computer human interaction, there's this lab in the corner of Stanford campus that's put out some really interesting stuff that I think doesn't get the credit it deserves in terms of uh, its impactfulness on the web. But it's all about designing for behavior change using computers, not humans, to trigger that behavior change. Like many years of research has been about human to human persuasion. You know, Cialdini's influence was like the you know, iconic book on this topic. But it was always about human to human. How does a human persuade another human to do something? And so the research I was doing in this lab uh, was how do you replace one of those humans with a computer and use a computer to trigger behavior change? So long story of what we discovered and what came out of it, and that's a whole different topic. Uh, the guy who runs the lab, his name is BJ Fogg. He was a mentor to me, he continues to be a friend, uh, really interesting dude. But one of the insights that came out of it was that you, you can design for behavior change at scale. So it's not just like one computer convincing one person to do something. You can design for behavior change at scale. And when you have triggers that fit in naturally to the user experience that someone's already expecting, it's a much more potent trigger to drive someone to change behavior. Dan, where were you? So what I'm trying to get at here is there's other people listening right now that maybe also just went through Stanford or Ivy League school and they're going, do I join a big consulting firm or do I go start my own thing? Tell me emotionally where you're at. I, I get kind of the subject matter, yeah, but yeah. emotionally, where were you at? Well, I think you're picking up what I was emotionally excited about, which is I was intellectually motivated by this concept that you can do something new and there's a whole new, like, interpersonal and intercomputer personal dynamic where you, the excitement for me was really about like the intellectual pursuit. And yeah. Dan, sorry, I'm doing a, I'm doing a shitty job asking this question. No, I, I get what you're trying to say. You like, eating ramen and bagels and I'm, no, well, I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to understand. I get, I, you, you've, you've nailed the philosophy. I get it. I love what you're up to, but inspire others who might've been in your shoes at that moment. Where were you at? Where was I at? So I was 22, 21. I had uh, dabbled in a few different like early startups. I started a company as my sophomore year that we tried and failed. I started a company junior year that uh, sort of succeeded and spun into its own thing. And this was now a graduate student. I was, I was in graduate school uh, doing this research and teaching some classes and just like being on campus in that that bubble of Stanford of like building and learning and reinventing things. And so honestly, like my emotional state was just, let me ride the wave of this energy and momentum to take this outside of the intellectual pursuit and outside of just like the, you know, the bubble of Stanford research into the world and see if we can bring like fresh new ideas and a fresh new point of view and kind of a, like a, maybe a younger view on this huge advertising ecosystem. Did you save you know, up a bunch of capital though, though, so you could go out and take this risk? So if you didn't have revenue the first year or two, you could survive? Or, I mean, had you had a financial windfall before that where, you know, you were fine or was there a bunch of student debt and you had to get revenue on day one to start paying that off? I mean, where, financially, where correct. were you at? We were lucky uh, in that what, what we did to start the company in the early days, we actually had built a bunch of applications on Facebook. Uh, and that was what... I guess that was what triggered some of the early thoughts was that we built these Facebook apps. We this is like F FBML? Yeah, this is like 2007 Facebook apps. Uh, we designed them for virality and they went viral and they, they grew and 
uh, we and others started to monetize these apps with traditional banner ads. So we would slap in the traditional Google AdSense tag and you'd make money like on the viral growth of these apps, but with the most inane, mindless, backwards advertising formats. Uh, and so in, in the early days, we said, A, that's amazing that we're making money. Let's like reinvest this in ourselves to try to build a business. But B, the way we're making money feels really not sustainable. Well, yeah, uh, Facebook obviously is not going to allow uh, keep allowing that to happen. This was like the static HTML little plugin app, right? Yeah, and there are a bunch yeah. of HTML apps on Facebook. So not, I wouldn't, I'm not saying that it was unsustainable because of Facebook. I would say it was unsustainable because it felt like the users were smarter than that. That if you're making money off of users seeing these annoying, weird ads for ringtones and belly fat and teeth whitening, maybe one in a ten thousand might click it, or one in a hundred thousand click it, and you make enough money. But that's that's not a sustainable business model. So to us, it was like, how do we reinvent advertising for ourselves? so that we can monetize these apps in a way that feels respectful and integrated and modern. And then eventually it was, let's grow and grow and grow and let's be the software that powers that for the open web, not just for like a random set of Facebook apps, but powers that for the new internet. And then to uh, talk, talk about today. Yeah. So where are you at in terms of team size? around that final point for you. So like where we were at, at the genesis of the company is that we were actually generating revenue before we'd even incorporated the company. You're doing we're like consulting really, an agency, essentially. No, no, no. We were generating revenue off of the ad revenue off of these Facebook apps we'd built before we even realized, like, oh shit, this is actually a company. Were you charging Dan though? Were you charging though folks to build those apps like an agency fee, like professional consulting, and then you also made money on top? Or these were apps you built for your own teeth whitening pages? You actually created the page yourself. It was your own brand. Mm. No, there's a step in the middle. Sorry. We were building Facebook apps like send hugs to your friends and rank your friends and oh. play a game with your friends and uh, Facebook apps that just ha- they went viral and they were, they were light touch and they were fun. And Got it. And then people would throw ads inside those apps. So while Got you're it. like interacting with your friends, there's a little ad at the bottom and the ad is like some shitty teeth whitening ad or the ad is a, a ringtone ad. We said we can do better than that. And instead of relying on Google to bring this, you know, this sort of dumb pipe of revenue to the bottom corner of a page. Let's like steamroll that off the page and replace it with advertising that fits in. So in early days of the company, we were generating revenue before we'd even actually incorporated. How much, how much are you talking? I mean, are we talking 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million? Yeah, we probably generated a few hundred thousand in revenue before we incorporated and put it all back into business to, to fund it originally. Yep. And then raised venture money. Uh, our early investors were Mike Maples, Floodgate, uh, Ron Conway, and an ecosystem of you know, Silicon Valley Angels, Steve Blank, folks like that. Uh, and then just you know, kind of grew and grew and grew. And before we go, go into the future, I'd say that the reason that we were able to succeed you know, as far as we've gotten so far is a focus on the problem. From the very beginning, it was not, we're going to build Facebook apps because that's something to do. It was, we're going to focus on the problem and try to really wrap our arms around the problem and get really articulate about the problem uh, and really try to get like, you know, to, in some ways, like get married to the problem space, not the solution. And so we've reinvented ourselves a bunch of times over the year, but uh at the core of it, it's always been about this problem area of how do you make ads that are integrated and that a, a user can like purposely choose to engage with as opposed to being forced to see something from the corner. 
Um, and, that, and that's always been like the baseline for everything. So if I have any startup advice, marry the problem, not the solution is a huge one. Guys, big news. Last month was a huge month for the company I recently acquired, which was www.thetopinbox.com. I liked the company so much when I met the person who created it. It lets you send emails later on Gmail, set up reminders like snooze almost to keep your inbox clean, do things like send auto follow-ups and do open tracking so you know when your emails get opened. It's great if you're in sales or CEO or trying to be more productive. So listen, I bought the whole company on the spot and I wanna tell you how I did it. I've showed the deal, by the way, to big smart people, private equity firms, VCs, and they're dumbfounded. They go, Nathan, how did you do this? We've never seen a deal like this. How did you do this? So I did an unbelievable deal and I wanna show you the income report. So for me to send you the income report, go to www.thetopinbox.com, click the red button that says install this on Gmail, and when you do that, my email will appear. It'll appear in a little uh, Gmail pop-up window. Send me an email and I'll reply immediately with the income report, and you can see how I'm buying and growing small B2B SaaS companies. That's www.thetopinbox.com. Totally free to try and use, www.thetopinbox.com. So Dan, we're running out of time here. So last few kind of questions here before we wrap up with the famous five. Where are you at today in terms of team size? And you mentioned obviously early funding. What are you at today in terms of how much you've raised? Sure, company is about 200 people now. Uh, offices around the country, including in Austin where you are. We've got headquarters in San Francisco, bunch of people in New York, London, LA, Detroit, Chicago, uh, Japan, probably somewhere else I'm forgetting. Uh, we've raised about $30 million in capital. We uh, have been growing a ton. And what does this, that mean? Are you talking like 100% year over year or 10%, 50? This year, we'll probably do about 250 million in gross ad spend through our pipes. So in, in terms of buyers buying native ads through share through, yep. either directly to the pub or through a private marketplace or through the exchange uh, or through other channels, it's probably about 250 million up from like 140 or so last year. That's great. And you mentioned on the, uh, you obviously take a rev share. The range you gave me was, you know, like above 10% or even obviously I'm sure some of those are a little bit more based off relationships, but it's fair to say you guys are doing more than 25 million a year in revenue, correct? Yes. Great. So good growth, um, uh, healthy. Oh, uh, tell, tell me real quick, marketplace stuff. So how many customers are you working with both on the publisher side and the advertiser side? Uh, I don't know offhand, do you know that person will probably it's probably 1,200 publishers okay. or 1,200 sites, I guess. Uh, in terms of advertisers, hundreds of advertisers, probably not thousands, but hundreds. Okay. You know, the advertisers we work with are like big brands, Coke and Nike and you know, Nestle and Walmart and Target and folks like that. And then the publisher side is like you know, the Rolling Stone and uh, People.com and Us Magazine and it, sort of the ecosystem of, of journalism and publishers that's underserved by Facebook and Google, but is incredibly important to like the future of the internet and the future of humanity that journalism survives and editorial content survives. So are you sitting there just like licking your chops when the election happens and everyone kind of blames Facebook for fake news and you're going, yeah, that's because their incentive structure is perverse. It's, it's messed up. We got to change it. Yeah. I mean, we're aligned with the publisher and Facebook didn't intend for <laughs> fake news to happen, but Facebook definitely needs to take some responsibility. And I think they have. Uh, both because they're forced, but also because I, I do truly believe Facebook doesn't intend for these negative externalities to happen. And that Facebook's existence has, you know, has created a bunch of incredible opportunities in the world by re reducing friction and connecting people and all the stuff that they espouse. But then the inverse is also true, that 
by reducing that friction and connecting people, you also create a bunch of negative externalities. And one of the you know, one of the groups, I guess, that are hurt by that are editorial publishers. In some ways, folks like you too, who are trying to make a business, you know, make a living running a business off of creating content. That if, oh, if Dan, to- I just use this as an excuse to beat the hell out of CEOs. I mean, I have my own software company on the side, but I get your point, man. It's 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 something. I, the reason I had my my booking team book a bunch of folks like you on the show is because this is a very large problem, and it's interesting to me. There's not a clear third place, and I'm curious, like how someone scales to, you know, a $50 billion company in this space if you're not Facebook or Google? Like, can a company like you do that? Mm. Time will tell. Uh, you know what's the interesting point to me is by the time someone does build a $50 billion you know, revenue ad business in, the, in parallel to Facebook and Google, will it even be on the internet? Yeah. Or will it be beyond? You know, I'm calling you through Skype on a laptop computer connected to a browser and I, I don't know if that exists 15 years from now. You know, I, I, something totally different that we haven't thought of yet and we have thought of and are giving credit for. But especially in our, our, our world, you know, we live and breathe publishers. 80% of our business happens here. 80% of the traffic for a publisher happens here on the phone. 80% of the feed is scrolling through. You know, it's that thumb scroll through the feed nonstop. It happens more on the phone than the desktop. You know, the desktop becomes for work and maybe for shopping or searching. But you know, this is really where like humanity discovers content and communicates with each other and like stretches our brains. It happens on our, in our pockets and in our hands and with our thumbs. And so to me, you know, preserving editorial content in some form is, is a noble cause that's incredibly important beyond just our company. Whether it's on the www.com web or not remains to be seen. Uh, but like I said before, we're married to the problem, not the solution. So We'll evolve our business over time uh, as user patterns evolve and as the internet evolves. Well said, Dan. Let's wrap up here with the famous five. Quick one-word answers here. Number one, what's the last business book you read? Last business book? Uh, probably The Fish That Ate the Whale. But favorite book, business book is Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank. Fish That Ate the Whale or Four Steps to the Epiphany. Good stuff. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? I think just the celebrity crew. The Musks and the Bezos. Give me a, give me a, give me a off the mainstream one that you've just been really impressed with. Be a friend of yours from from school or one there local in your community. I don't know, man. That's a hard question. Uh, I, I don't know. I actually don't have a good answer for you. A CEO that I'm following. Like who do you? It's not. Sorry, following is maybe the wrong word. Like it's the one you went out to dinner with and you had a conversation that was scheduled for thirty minutes. It turns into three hours, right? Because just the way they're thinking about their business is very interesting. Sure. Uh, ask me again so you get a nice sound bite then. <laughs> what is the, uh, tell me about like a CEO or someone you went to dinner with recently that really pushed your brain. You love how they're thinking about running their business. Sure. A uh, good friend and angel investor in our company and like continued mentor over the course of the past 10 years has been a guy named Oren Hoffman, who's hyper-connected, thinks really deliberately, uh, and is just, just a good guy. Uh, he runs a company, he ran a company called LiveRamp that just got sold last year. Just started a new company also in the data space, but I, I just like the way he thinks and he's definitely always been an inspiration to me. Number three, what's your favorite online tool for building the business? Uh, Feedly and Flipboard. Feedly and Flipboard, good. Number Stay connected f- to the news of your world. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Uh, well, I just had a baby, <laughs> but uh, I will humble brag and say I do definitely get eight hours of sleep a night. That's good. And so what's the situation? Married, one kiddo or more? 
Uh, married, one kid, and he just likes to sleep. All right. And how old are you? Uh, I'm 32. 32. Last question, Dan. Take us back 12 years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? I would tell myself to go faster. From a guy who already seems to be going pretty fast. There you guys have it from Dan. He says he would go faster. Had some successes as he was going through Stanford with little companies and you know that he was growing and selling. Ultimately hit some early gold in terms of a Facebook app space. Things went viral. He would sell things like clicks on, you know, whitening products or things like that. Knew that wasn't the future, but the money was nice. He used that to reinvest into his new company, which was launched in 2008, Share Through, really creating an alternative option for the duopoly that currently is online advertising between Google and Facebook with his team of two. 200, based in many different offices, but Austin, San Fran, New York City, London, LA, to name a few. Again, processing and working with about 1,200 publishers and hundreds of advertisers. They've raised $30 million and growing rapidly. Over the past 12 months, they've done about $250 million bucks in volume through their platform. Take about 10% on that, so call it $25 million or more in revenue. Also, the SaaS platform they push on a CPM basis. Stan, thank you for taking us to the top. Take care.